We're going to be in Acts chapter 11 this morning, so if you would go ahead and turn your Bible there or your phone or whatever device you might use. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, and this morning, before we get started, I need a show of hands. Who in the room would consider themselves to be a movie buff? All right, we've got a few down here, so you might understand this little illustration that I'm about to give you. One of the things about going to the movie theater, for whatever reason, we anticipate the movie in the theater more than any other time. The popcorn at a movie theater tastes better than anywhere else. I'm not sure if they're restricting the ingredients from the rest of the world, but you know that when you go to a movie theater, the popcorn is astronomically better there than anywhere else. The Cokes taste better there. The seating is better. And you sit in your seat, and there are the local ads and the local commercials, and then the previews come on. But something happens in a movie theater right before the main film comes on. The next time you go to the theater, if you haven't noticed this before, I want you to notice it. The curtain expands about an extra six inches on each side, shortly before the main movie comes on. Now, why does it do this? This is a deliberate decision by the movie theaters to provide you a signal that it's about to get really, really good. This is why you paid the 15 bucks or whatever it costs now to come to the movies. When those six inches expand on each side, tune in. So this morning, we're in Acts chapter 11, and I like to use Acts 10 and 11, and I like to think that it is just like that experience in the movie theater when the screen expands about six inches on each side. Because in Acts 10 and Acts 11, it's paving the way for what's about to happen as the church leaves Jerusalem and begins to expand out to the entire world. So if you would with me this morning, we're going to begin Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And here's how it says. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. But when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and I saw a trance, or I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel and in his house, and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, 
and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell down and they glorified God, saying, Then also to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter, being a good Jewish man, was well aware of what God was doing to him in this story. But it was life-changing for him. And in order to understand really what Peter's getting at when we begin to talk about circumcision and uncircumcision, we really need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 17, after God has chosen Abraham and told him, you are going to be the father of many nations, it is through you, Abraham, that I will bless all of your descendants and the rest of the world. God tells Abraham, the sign of the covenant, the sign of the promise between me and you as God's chosen people is going to be circumcision. And God told Abraham, on the eighth day, take every male and have him circumcised. God took this so seriously that he also tells us in Genesis 17 that those who are not circumcised will be broken off from the covenant. They will be separated from everyone else. Now, when you and I think of circumcision, we're not thinking of it in terms of a physical sign of a promise between God and his male descendants. But in Peter's day, this is exactly what he was thinking about. Circumcision was the sign that set Jews apart from everyone else. And so when these Jewish men come up to Peter and they tell him, Peter, you went and ate with uncircumcised people? What that means is Peter went to those that were not like him. He invested in those that were not like him. It's interesting you and I can have a conversation after the service today or we can shake hands as we walk by and that only requires a few seconds of interaction. And Peter could have done this. He could have just shaken their hand and kept going. But when he decided to sit down at a meal with them, he's adding another layer of intimacy. I know this from experience. When my wife and I went on our very first date in college, I got to the end of the evening and I realized that I'd had 14 glasses of water at that meal. So the reasoning behind that was, in my mind, as long as I have food in my mouth or if I'm drinking something, anytime there's an awkward pause in the conversation, this is a legitimate excuse. I have food or water in my mouth. When you sit down with someone at a meal, you better have something to talk about because it's going to last a very long time if you don't. So Peter goes another layer deeper with his Gentile brothers and sisters here. He doesn't just shake their hand. He goes and he invests in them, and his Jewish brothers were not happy about it. See, the reality is for you and I this morning, we're called by God to invest in people that are not like us. You know, God hardwired us to have relationships with people based on similar interests, similar hobbies, and that's good. We should have people that we can connect with that way. But if the only people we ever invest in 
The only people we ever share the gospel with are those that look just like us, act just like us, have similar hobbies as us. Then we're robbing the gospel of its true significance. Because when you go back and you look at all the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, he goes to lepers, he goes to women, he goes to Samaritans, he goes to the poor, and he invests in those that really he should have had nothing to do with as a Jewish male. But he says, you know what, at the end of the day, what's most important is that I invest in these people because the gospel breaks down every geographic, ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural, financial barrier that we can put on why we would have a relationship with someone else. Jesus says, none of that stuff matters. What matters is that everyone have access to the gospel regardless of any of those external conditions we put on it. So we ask ourselves this morning, who are we investing in as a church? Who are we investing in individually as a family that's not like us? And second, we need to learn from Peter's experience in this passage. Oftentimes when we, when we get here to Acts chapter 11, we view Peter as this hard-headed legalist. But the reality is, when Peter has this sheet dropped down in front of him, and all of these animals are on it, he's only doing what a Jewish man would do. Because we don't have time to read it today. But if you go all the way back, Leviticus chapter 11, all 46 verses of that chapter tell us what Jews could eat and what they couldn't eat. And all of the things that dropped down on this sheet in this vision that Peter had were things that a Jew was not supposed to eat. He doesn't construct this out of his head. As a good Jewish man trying to obey the law as best as he could, he thought he was doing the right thing until God gave him this vision and told him, Peter, kill it and eat it. Now, I imagine this morning there are some of us in this room, and I say us because I would identify with this. You are a rule follower. You like to dot your I's and cross your T's. You like structure. You like organization. You want rules. They keep your life clean and simple. So some of you in here are probably rule followers when it comes to traffic laws. You go ahead and you stop at the yellow light, just in case it might turn red, because you don't want to risk running that red light, especially in New Orleans with the amount of camera tickets. I can assure you, you want to stop at the yellow light. You stop at the stop sign completely. You don't roll through. You never turn left when you're not supposed to. You yield exactly the way that you're supposed to every single time. Now, there are some of you in here that are like that. But engage with me in a little thought experiment. Imagine you're sitting at the house with your family or your friends and something terrible happens to one of the people at your house. They have an accident. They have a fall. They pass out. You're really concerned about their health to the point that you don't even have enough time to call the ambulance. So you load them up in your car and you take off to the closest emergency room you can find. At that moment, how important do all of the traffic laws become to you? Suddenly, they don't mean a thing. Because human life trumps traffic laws. 
So Peter receives this vision from God, drops these animals down on this sheet. What is God teaching Peter? Peter, the gospel trumps your dietary restrictions. Now we know at the Old Testament you have the ritual laws and the ceremonial laws and these dietary restrictions that God placed on the Jewish people back in Leviticus. But then you have the moral law, the Ten Commandments, these types of laws, that don't suddenly go away when Christ comes on the scene, right? He did away with these other laws, but the moral law, he still wants us to abide by. Now, at this point in the story, we know that Jesus has ascended back into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of his Father. Peter was aware that Jesus ushered in the new covenant. The sacrificial system is no longer needed at this point. But you know, just like Peter, you and I have certain things that we hold on to because we think just in the back of our mind, somehow God's going to be more satisfied with me. If I just adhere to this, even though he doesn't say to do it, I just have this feeling inside of me, if I adhere to this, I'm going to be better off. So in Acts chapter 10, which we didn't read this morning, is the actual account of Peter going to Cornelius' house, a centurion, somebody who was not a Jew, and he goes in to his house and he shares the gospel with other people that are not Jews after God had given him this vision, making him realize that Peter, the gospel trumps everything. So we learn from Peter in this passage what not to do. Not to hold on to these things that we've created in our mind or that were once time, at one time good, but they're not anymore. We proclaim the gospel without restrictions. And then we have to learn, most importantly in this passage, to follow the Spirit. Luke tells us something very, very important here. He says, the Spirit made no distinction. That means, as you and I go and we engage with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, we make no distinction on who is worthy of hearing the gospel and who is not. Many of you know the holiday, St. Patrick's Day, all right? We wear green, we go to parades, we have parties, but the significance of St. Patrick is much larger than the holiday we celebrate every March. As a 16-year-old boy, he was kidnapped from his home in Britain, kidnapped by Irish pirates and enslaved in Ireland. And for six years, he was a slave there until he was able to escape and return back home to Britain. Well, later in his life, God called him to be a missionary. And you know where St. Patrick goes back to? The very people that kidnapped him and enslaved him when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of your heart, that's what happens. You love people that hate you. You serve people that despise you. You pray for those who persecute you. 
Brothers and sisters, if we are to submit to the truth of what God is teaching us here, that when the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us, we make no distinction, that actually means we make no distinction. God could save the leader of ISIS this afternoon and make him the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen. Do we actually believe that? Because when he comes and he lives inside of you and he radically transforms your heart and your mind, people all over the world become relevant. And the gospel has to get out as fastly and as quickly as possible. That's why we send so much money to missionaries overseas so we can get the gospel to these far remote places, people that have never even heard of Jesus' name, people that might hate Jesus, people that might hate America. We send the gospel there anyways because the goal of the kingdom of God is not American Christianity. It is a global, multi-ethnic, diverse group of people where every tongue, tribe, nation, and people will bow down and say, Jesus is Lord. That does not just apply to the people in this room, in this city, or in this country. So we got to get the message out. And if we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, like Peter did in this passage, as he took the message to people that were not like him, God will do that in our hearts. So we follow his leadership. And then last, we get out of the way. What we find here is, Peter says this towards the end of the passage, that when I saw that God was moving among the Gentiles, I got out of the way because I knew that God was doing something special. I've shared with you before one of my buddies from high school that I go to lunch with from time to time. And about a month ago, we went to lunch, or two months ago, and... He told me that he was ready to make a decision to follow Christ. I said, this is awesome. So we sit down, we go to lunch, we start talking about it. Then at the end of our lunch, he says, you know, I was ready to make a decision, but now you've confused me more than ever. What a humbling experience for somebody who should know how to communicate the gospel to somebody in a simple way. But what God was teaching me in that moment is, you're not the gatekeeper, Taylor, to somebody coming to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that works in people's hearts to change lives. I read a story in the Gospel Coalition website this past week about an Iranian man named Cameron who sold drugs and sold weapons illegally. He was not well loved in his community. And his friend, who was a believer, gave him a New Testament. And for five days, that man read that New Testament Bible, and Cameron became a believer in Jesus Christ after reading that New Testament for five days. The friend didn't have an elaborate presentation. He didn't even share the gospel with him verbally. He just handed him a New Testament. Cameron was so radically changed and transformed that those in his family became believers, those in his immediate area became believers, and now Cameron is making a radical difference in Iran as a result of a friend handing him a copy of the New Testament. When Steve Jobs released his Macintosh computer in 1984, anybody own this original Macintosh computer? You can raise your hand, it doesn't mean you're old. <laughs> the original 84 Macintosh right here, okay? Shortly before the release of this computer, 
Steve Jobs sat down at a meeting with his software developers and his engineers, and he said, all right, guys, here's the deadline. This is when I want it out by. How are we looking? And his software engineers and all of his developers, they began to make excuses. Well, this program's pretty good, but I think if we tweak this or that, it could be better. They were making all these excuses. We could tweak it. It could be better. We know it could be better. And Steve Jobs finally sat them all down, and he said, I want to tell you something. Real artists ship. Real artists ship. And what he was trying to convey to his leadership team was that you can have a great idea, you can tweak the product, you can make it the best it's ever been. But at the end of the day, if you're not willing to ship the product, it's meaningless. Sometimes I believe that we, we try so hard to have the right words to say and have the right verses memorized and tweak our gospel presentations just so perfectly that there's no way anybody could turn it down that at the end of the day, we don't ship the product. So the lesson that Steve Jobs, over 30 years ago, was giving his software engineers is applicable to you and I today when it comes to sharing the gospel. I'm reading a book right now called Culture Makers, and it's talking about how you as a Christian can create new culture where you live. And the premise of the book is that over the years, Christians have been really good at critiquing culture and condemning culture and running away from culture, but that we really haven't been that good about creating culture, contributing to culture. And one of the examples he gives in that book is something that happened on June 29, 1956. Anybody have an idea? No, you're not going to have an idea, so let me just tell you. On June 29th, 1956, Dwight Eisenhower passed the Federal Interstate Act. Now, as somebody that was born in 1985, I just kind of assumed that interstates had always been around. But it wasn't until Eisenhower passed this law, which originally, by the way, was to provide better defense for our country so that military could get to and from different places at a much faster rate, as he traveled through our infrastructure during World War I, he realized we are not set up in a good way. And so he initiated this project, a $25 billion project with over 41,000 miles of roadway across this country. Now, two things happened. One of many things happened, but a couple of things really important happened. Number one is we have the birth of suburbia. Okay? When the interstate system is put into place, you begin to have communities pop up outside these large metropolitan areas. Why does this happen? It happens because now that interstates are around, you can commute to work in a very efficient way and still live 15 or 20 minutes out of the city. So in the late 50s and early 60s, we have suburbia blowing up all over these major cities. And another thing that happened was, in 1958, 67 million people were registered to drive a vehicle. Over double the amount of people that were registered in the early 1950s. Why is this significant? For the first time, 
Interstates can take you from New Orleans to New York to L.A. to Dallas. You have freedom literally to go wherever you want in this country. And that was enticing to people. So they begin to buy cars. All because Eisenhower put into place this interstate act. Suburbia exists. More people are buying cars. The inner city becomes a place of crime. Why? Because everybody that could afford a card moved out into the suburbs, leaving the inner cities damaged. All of these things happened as a result of Eisenhower creating the interstate system. So, why does that matter? The last time I checked, roads are made of cement and water. Those two products radically change the face of this country. You and I standing and sitting in this room have the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts. Meaning, not only could we radically change this city, not only could we radically change this nation, we could radically change the world. We have the power to do that because of the Spirit living inside of us. You are a culture maker. You are a culture maker in your family. You are a culture maker in your school. You are a culture maker in your neighborhood. We have the power to change lives because the Holy Spirit resides in us. If cement and water can change the face of this country, I'm highly confident that with the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can change the world. Not because of us, but because of the Spirit that lives in us. So at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves this question. How much does it mean to us? How much does the gospel and changing lives mean to us? And if it means something to us, then we borrow the words of Steve Jobs and we say, real artists ship. Just like Peter in this passage gets to work sharing the gospel, you and I need to start rolling up our sleeves and getting to work this morning. We can do it because the Spirit resides in us. Will you pray with me this morning? God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for what you teach us in this passage, that there is no distinction between gender, between race, between neighborhoods, between how much money we make. God, your spirit makes no distinctions. So God, right now, put on everyone's heart one person that needs to hear the gospel. And God, give us all a plan for how we can go about this week communicating the gospel to them. Lord, heaven is going to be full of people that are not like us. May we have a church on earth full of people that are not like us as well. 
Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word that teaches us and changes us. Speak to us now, God, as we reflect on what this passage means to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.